Escape velocity. What is that? What are you doing? I'm eating a sandwich. You know we're recording, um, right? No. no. Uh, sorry, I just That's so rude. Oh, look at this book. Is that vegan sandwich? Vegan sandwiches saved the day. I got it in Cleveland. Wow. Of all places. Yeah, I'm eating the Almocado sandwich. Mmm. So good. It's got uh organic beets. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ah, organic orange juice. Mm. Uh, organic avocado. Organic yeah, I, lemon juice, organic almond butter, but organic bread. I, you have an organic you, greens. You didn't, you didn't oh, hear. Mm. Sorry, Chris. What? I I hate to burst your bubble, but didn't you hear the latest news? No. Organics are bullshit. What do you mean? Let me read you a few headlines, Chris. From what? The news. What news? Mainstream news. I'm not listening. The New York Times declares Stanford scientists cast doubt on advantages of organic meat and produce. Time asks us, is it worth buying organic? Maybe not. The Globe and Mail says new study finds scant evidence of health benefits from eating organic foods. And our beloved CBC tells us organic foods health benefits questioned in U.S. study. This sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? It does. It sounds weird. It's counterintuitive to me. It is counterintuitive. So these are all referring to a study that was released earlier this month Mm -hmm. by researchers at Stanford University. Okay. And the study was entitled, Are Organic Foods Safer or Healthier Than Conventional Alternatives? A Systematic Review. Hmm. Interesting. You can see a link to this study in the show notes. Um, This was not a new study. There was no new research done. It was simply examining a couple hundred other studies that have been done over the years going back to the 70s and looking at the data to try to tease out some information. Uh, I heard this headline on CBC the morning it was released, was enraged. I even tweeted about it. That's how mad I was. Whoa. I know. Heavy stuff, eh? You're an activist. I am an activist. So I looked into this study. I read these news articles and these headlines completely obfuscate the truth of the study which is that it took the tenet that there is some sort of wide-held belief, which perhaps there is, but I've never come across it, that organic foods themselves are somehow more nutritious than conventional foods, which I have never believed. Neither have I. That's very strange. There's never been a reason that I've eaten organic foods. But this was the tenet, which they then set up to disprove. So it's an obvious, what is referred to as a straw man argument. Yeah. And furthermore, the study did find that, obviously, as you would expect, organic foods contained far fewer pesticide residues if you ate organic meat and dairy products, which, of course, no one does, right? No one listening would eat dairy products or dead animals because it's crazy. Um, But if you did, just hypothetically, 
you would be consuming no antibiotics. You would be exposed to less antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Basically, media outlets took this straw man and ran with it. Um, and in most articles, like the New York Times article, you had to get three quarters of the way into the report before you actually saw the reality that the study actually said that there were some good reasons to eat organic food. Right. So while I was doing some research on this for today, there was actually an article on the website Grist written by Twilight Greenaway. Is it okay to make fun of someone's first name if it's Twilight? I guess they didn't choose it. I'll make fun of her parents. Okay. Twilight Greenway compiled a good summary. It's funny coming from a guy whose middle name is Gowan. (laughs) It was my grandfather's name. It's not based on Larry Gowan, the eminent 80s pop singer. The title of of this article is uh, Organic Food Might Not Be More Nutritious, But You Should Eat It Anyway. She goes over some prominent rebuttals to this study, which all hit on the points that I was thinking of for today. So you should definitely check out this article. There's a link in the show notes. Because most people, like my parents or whatever, they'd hear this thing on the news and then they'd just be, oh, good, see? We're totally fine. We'll just keep buying whatever shit and it's, there's no difference. That's what the news told me. Right. But the central reason why people eat organic food, what would your guess be, Chris? About Why do you think, why do you eat organic food? Derek, let me put it in layman's terms, layperson's terms. If I have two bananas that are nutritionally identical and I put them on a table... I pull down my pants and I piss on one of them. Which one are you going to eat? I would eat the one that hadn't been pissed on. Everyone on earth will eat the one that has not been pissed on. The study is obviously a reversal of logic. It's not about some nutritionally endowed piece of food versus another nutritionally deficient piece of food. It's about two identical pieces of food, one with poison on it and one without poison on it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. When the study was comparing the levels of chemicals, they made this claim that the conventional produce only had 30% more pesticide and herbicide residue than the organic. Here's a quote. Uh, This is from Tim Philpott, writing in Mother Jones, who has an article, Five Ways the Stanford Study Underestimates Organic Food. To get the 30% difference, the authors used an odd statistical construct they call risk difference. By their method, if 5% of organic vegetables contain at least one pesticide trace and 35% of conventional vegetables contain at least one trace, then the risk difference is 30%, 35 minus 5. But that's a silly way of thinking about it because there's a much greater difference between those numbers than 30% suggests. Crunching the author's own raw data, Benbrook, this is uh, Chuck Benbrook, a research professor at the Washington State University Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources. Benbrook finds an overall 81% lower risk or incidence of one or more pesticide residues in the organic samples compared to the conventional samples. Okay. So, again, there's some misdirection going on in this study. The Consumers Union, which runs the website consumerreports.org, they also had something to say about this study. They said that it had serious limitations. There were only 17 human studies that was in the analysis, and only three of them actually looked at health outcomes of eating conventional versus organic food, and two of those only focused on allergies in children. So when you're talking about what are the health benefits of organic food and you basically have almost no data that's actually looking at clinical outcomes in human populations— Data is severely limited in what it can offer insight on. It makes you wonder what 
How does a story like that get so twisted to become just a, a headline that doesn't tell the real story? There's some journalist along the way that is either a moron or is malicious. Well, and I think part of it is on Stanford University's School of Medicine, on their own website, their title for the story about it is Little Evidence of Health Benefits from Organic Foods, Stanford Study Finds. So from the beginning, everyone who's putting this out there is taking this angle. because. Right, but, but why doesn't the news service, why doesn't the initial journalist who receives it reading it and going, oh, that, that's, not, that's not the case. Because, because the media is fucked. It's, all news organizations have, ha- have been gutted over the past 10 years. There's very little fact-checking. People are just looking at press releases and they just translate it directly to the headlines. Putting out headlines that people want to hear. Yeah, that will get people titillated. And then all of these stories, you know, it's like a 10 or 15 second little clip I'm going online and reading rebuttals of this from all sorts of publications, but that is the tiniest portion of the population that will do that. Mm-hmm. No one, they'll just hear it and then it's in their consciousness and then together with everything else they see at the grocery store and in the media and their perceptions about organic food and its price and how it's some sort of you know niche lifestyle and it's all these different cultural things come together and it's like, oh, oh, I don't eat organic food. That's crazy. Yeah. We live in a very messed up society where if there are two bananas on the table and I piss on one and then tell people the one with the piss on it has no nutritional difference to the other one, people will eat the pissed on one. Well, if you charge them less for the pissed on banana. Oh, I will. I pissed on it. (laughs) Even though it's now value added, you're getting more stuff for your money. It's marketing. <laughs> Another point that I saw made, which I thought was good, is that why it's organic food gets the label, where really it's just, it's unmolested food. It's the conventional food, which should have the label attached like a little, to it. a little skull and crossbones. <laughs> yeah. Like, a, like on the side of a Clorox bottle. Yeah. Do not consume too much of this, or we will find detectable traces of pesticide in your urine, like they did in the study. Which will then be on your banana, if you eat at my house. Hold on, Chris. Hold the phone. What? I have a breaking news alert that came into my inbox. Just now. Just now. Right when we were recording. This is a link to an article on CBC News. Oh, great. Which is one of the same perpetrators of this bizarre and completely false reporting that we've just been discussing. Hmm. It is titled, It's News, But Is It True? This is by Kelly Crow on the CBC News website. This is how she leads the article. There's no such thing as a slow news day on the health beat. Even if there are no killer viruses on the loose and no deadly bacteria spreading in the food chain, there's always a, quote, new study to report on. But what if a study found that most studies end up being wrong? Wouldn't that study be wrong? Would that study make the news? Well, it happened. A paper with the startling title, Why Most Biomedical Findings Echoed by Newspapers Turn Out to Be False, was published a few weeks ago by a French research group. And no, that study did not make it into the headlines. So... This is very interesting, isn't it? It is. Because this is confirming everything that we're talking about here on Escape Velocity Radio. And I like it when things are confirmed that we say. It confirms all of our compiled research that we've published over the 
Oh, wait. I just got an email. All of our research is wrong. Shut up. What were their research methods? They were led by a neurobiologist by the name of François Gonon. That's the proper pronunciation on French, so is I know it? that. Hmm. They looked at newspapers. Uh, and Boring. How they, and I know. And how they reported on certain high-profile studies. They focused specifically on uh, ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, which you have. And they asked a simple question. Quote, do scientific claims reported in the media end up being proven true over time? Their answer, in most cases, no. Then they asked, do the media go back and set the record straight? No again. Hmm. In other words, we in the media, this is Kelly Crow saying this in her article. In other words, we in the media make a big deal over a new research finding. But when it turns out to be less exciting or even wrong after future research, we don't tend to report that. Never mind doesn't usually make it into the news. Sounds like Kelly's eating a little bit of crow. So this is, uh, I mean, it's not surprising because this is how the news cycle works. But this is refreshing to see CBC reporting the fact that most of their health reporting on new fantastical new studies that make headlines and titillate people are probably wrong because it's just scientists pumping out garbage to get more funding and get notoriety in hmm. the media. So that's why I'm against science in all forms, <laughs> under all circumstances. I'll buy that. Until this study's proven wrong. So, Chris, I've received a request from the listenership. What is that request? That I am kicked off the show? Because... I concur. That was the secondary request. Oh. The, the request that got the most votes in my impartial anonymous online poll was that you regale us with stories of your recent sojourn abroad with your band Propagandi, as the Americans like to say. Okay. So we were on tour and we went with uh, fellow Winnipeggers, Comeback Kid. Know them. Great guys to be on tour with. So other than being on the road with Comeback Kid, what were, what were some of the highlights? Some of the cities you hit, maybe some cool bands you saw? Well, there's lots of great times, Derek. I mean, Toronto was great. Montreal was great. London was great. Ottawa. Shikudemi was great. Ottawa was not so great. Uh, Stephen Harper came to the show. Stephen Harper came to the show. Quebec was great. I actually invited Jason Kenney. Did you? I did. Like what, via on, Twitter? On Twitter. I invited okay. him so, just so we could refuse him entry at the door. <laughs> and did he show up? And you, no, he you, didn't. No, he didn't. Eh? No. Uh, he's a little more of a, um, he's less of a propagandy fan. He's more of like a lagwagon fan, I think. I think he's more of a screwdriver fan. Ah, I was going to say Nickelback. For I those of you wondering, enough. Jason Kenney is the Minister of Deportation in Canada. Yeah, uh, that's anyways. his new official title, yeah. right? Minister of Deportation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So lots of good stuff in Canada, lots of exciting things. And we got to the States and I thought Boston was very interesting. I'd never actually spent more than a couple hours in Boston. So we got to walk around a bit. Mm -hmm. I walked onto Harvard campus, which is like Ooh. being on a movie set. And I hoped to come out smarter. Mm -hmm. And? I didn't. Ah, uh, I could have told you that. I might have been dumber. Right. And we played with a really, really good band, an actual, a, a genuinely good band called Disaster Strikes. Okay. In Boston. I think I've heard of them before, but I've never heard their music. Yeah, it's like a classic hardcore kind of band with a definite Boston tinge. Okay. Little, there's, I don't know if they'd acknowledge this, but there's a little bit of slap shot in there. Kind of mm. like it like that. I really liked them, Derek, because, well, they're a good band, but they also, they took time out on stage to use the mic to make some statements about the world around us. Yeah. 
And that is something that doesn't always happen anymore. And no. it reminded me of a bygone era where everybody did it for about 14 minutes between 30 seconds songs. I don't know anything about that. Shut up. <laughs> but I really, I appreciate it now. Like they were earnest, articulate, and compelling statements. Yeah, it's like an early 90s political hardcore vibe. Yeah, and it, it's sorely missing. You made note of it at the recent Winnipeg show we played it's with true. a band called Head It's Concrete. Yeah, Head It's Concrete opened for you guys not nice. long ago. A couple days ago. And uh, it was pretty cool to see Mike, the lead singer, yeah, just discussing a few of the songs, taking more than just like a tiny, not just like a sound bite, but actually, uh, you know, giving some explanation and context. I like that. It, it brought me back to uh, a time where it was equally about the aesthetic and the content, not just all about the aesthetic especially in the context of the West End Cultural Center where that used to happen writ large. <laughs> yes, to a ridiculous degree, perhaps. Should we play a bit of footage of you, in our, of you on stage at the West End Cultural Center back in the early 90s? <gasps> Please put don't. It, put it in the show notes? Please don't. <laughs> no, but uh, Disaster Strikes, check them out. We'll put their link in the show notes. Here's some good old-time Boston hardcore from Disaster Strikes. Yeah, Boston. So that was Boston. Yes. Chris, while you were in New York, did you happen to bump into any of the Hretsukan folk? You mean the band we released records for on G7 Welcoming Committee Records? That is correct. Excellent band. Love that band. You know, we were playing a show the second night in New York City, mm -hmm. and I was ripping out this fucking amazing guitar solo. It was fucking <laughs> I turned around in the middle of the solo. I looked up, and there was fucking Dave from Hretsukan. Really? Was he snapping pictures? He was behind my amp taking pictures. Yeah, sounds like Dave. Yeah. Whatever happened to that band? I know what happened to that band, but I'm asking you so you can tell our listeners. What became of Hiretsukan 
Well, Michelle, who sang for Hiratsuken, yes. who fucking rippingly screamed for Hiratsuken, yes. now actually sings for a band called These Days. Ah. You know, I actually mastered an EP of theirs. What? Yeah. Didn't I tell you that? I don't think you did. You didn't know that. I don't that... think I did that you mastered it. I've never even heard this band. What? Here, I'll give you one of the... I have a seven inch. You can take I, it. I don't have a record player. Are you serious? Yes. You're a loser. They recorded this uh, EP, this is a year or two ago now, and I did the mastering for them. Uh, I demand to hear a song. I did a shitty job. Oh. Want to hear it? Yes. Chris, I understand that when you were in New York City, you actually had the occasion to go and see the one and only Ralph Nader give a talk. Yeah, I went to see him speak in a bookstore there. And uh, what, what was the occasion? It was uh, the occasion, Derek, of Ralph Nader's speaking engagement was the release of his recent book, The 17 Solutions, Bold Ideas for Our American Future. In our case, an American future. But right. And um, this affects us all. This is an important book for yes. all people who live in the United States of America to read. I agree. Why not? You know what? I said this multiple times in subsequent days about his speaking engagement. When I saw him speak, it made me wish I was an American so I could actually participate in this program he has lined up right. in this book. Maybe we should give a bit of a summary, Chris, on what he covers in this book. Give me some of the points, Derek, that you gleaned. I didn't glean anything. Some of the solutions he proposes, these are the topics he covers in this book, just in case you want to have a little more info before you take the plunge and purchase this, which you will, which you should and will do. He talks about reforming the tax system. 
He talks about making our communities more self-reliant. I can get behind that. He talks about reclaiming science and technology for the people. He talks about getting corporations off welfare, reducing the bloated military budget, enlisting the enlightened super rich. This is a big thing he's all on too. He wrote a book yeah, about this. I can see that being, that's probably the most contentious. Contentious or, well, yeah, possibly contentious for lots of people. But, but regardless. Mean, it's, it's a reality-based book. It's, that's it's, true. The assumption the book is making is that we live in this world that we currently live in. Yeah, rather than the one that we all want. Yeah. And we'll never get. And um, I could see people in general wondering why, why would we be promoting Ralph Nader? It's so mainstream. Except he's not. But he is. But he is he, ignored. He is completely ignored by the mainstream. He is ignored. I think the challenge here, Derek, is that there's nothing very romantic or glamorous about what Ralph Nader is proposing. No, it's there, true. There's no glorious revolution in uh, what he's proposing. He's proposing using the existing system to reform the existing system. And uh, he's proposing that people actually do lots of tedious work to get it done. None of which appeals to almost anybody. Including me. <laughs> It's almost like reading, when you read, say, Michael Albert from Z Magazine's uh, synopsis of Paracon, most people are like, oh, that sounds really cool. I like that. You know, and then this, you, is, this is the theory of participatory economics. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then you open his book, Paracon, and actually see what, what kind of work and organizing it would take to make it happen on a society-wide scale. Most people close the book. Yeah. Because people, we live in a society that wants quick solutions. Easy solutions. Press a button and it's done. But that ain't going to happen. Or break a window and it's done. Break a window and it's done. I, like you, Derek, imagine a future where we all live in biospheres, where everybody votes on everything. Ooh. And we all eat organic vegan food Ooh. at a brunch of tables full of 5,000 people oh. collectively. Oh. Keep going. All wearing anarchist t-shirts. Ah. But the truth is I would settle for Ralph Nader's America. I would settle for yeah. his very mainstream, very by-the-book version of America because salvaging America can help salvage the planet. Anyways, I think one of the main points he makes in the book, in it, like the overarching main point, in addition to what you're, the points you made, is that he's encouraging citizens to organize to influence Congress. Right. More so than anything else. Yeah. And uh, he explains how it all works. And it's almost like the key to the whole puzzle. He's saying, this is the key to the whole thing. All we have to do is organize around it. You can see other groups like the NRA and the Isra pro-Israeli lobby doing it. Anyone succeeding. Can do it. Succeeding. Anyone can do it if you just get the numbers and the person power to do it. Which is not exactly, like you're saying, glorious or no. exciting work. And it's, it's repellent to people who are sick of the vertical bureaucratic bullshit fucking system. And I can understand why it's a little bit demeaning to insert yourself into that system and try to work from within. But it would be advantageous to have this as one of the... Tools in the toolbox? One of the many tools, one of the many prongs on the pitchfork, one of the many... There's not that many prongs on a pitchfork. This, You're limiting this, yourself this, to like three or four. This pitchfork has millions of prongs. Fuck, I gotta see that. You wanna see my prong? I mean, in addition to, say, the Occupy movement, in addition to the Black Bloc tactic, in addition to writing letters, in addition to this and that, yeah. this is a bold idea for an American future. Hey, that's what it says on the front. <laughs> Did you just write the fucking byline for the book right now in the future and it went back and got printed? Yes. If, Derek, America is to rescue itself from corruption, complacency, and corporate domination, this is definitely worth reading. 
and definitely worth taking seriously. In addition to more radical, more militant things that everybody fucking wants to lead the parade on and somewhere down the road have some poster of them in a anarchist bookstore in the future. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> For fuck's sakes. Oh, it's unbelievable. So this is The 17 Solutions by Ralph Nader. Yes. Link in the show notes. Check it out. Read it tonight. Hey, you know what we should link to in those show notes too? I know exactly what we should link to. I know what you're going to say. I know exactly what you're going to say. I know exactly what you're going to say. It's amazing. An Unreasonable Man? The documentary about Ralph Nader. Yes, this is a documentary from a few years back, which is uh, an excellent portrait of the man. Yes. If you're interested in his career in activism and having tangible impact on saving the lives of people who live in the United States through his various campaigns against corporate negligence and his thwarted potential to save America itself. Thanks, punk voter. Speaking of Ralph Nader, Derek, what do you think Ralph Nader thinks about the 2012 federal U.S. election? Oh, I can tell you what he thinks about it. You know why? No. Because I read an article entitled, What Ralph Nader is Thinking About the 2012 Election, on the website alternate.org. Oh, so do tell. Would you like me to summarize for you? I would. This is what Ralph Nader says. Why vote for a war criminal? Why vote for someone who wants to be an even bigger war criminal? Why vote for someone who has betrayed all of his promises and hope? Obama has violated federal statutes, international treaties, and the Constitution, sending drones all over the world, killing people he wants to kill, violating American laws. He still has surveillance without judicial approval. Guantanamo is still going on. And yet people will vote for him because there's nowhere to go? There comes a point when they're both so bad, Obama has done everything Bush has done and worse. He's sending drones anywhere in the world, killing American citizens. Bush has never done that. I don't know if that's correct grammar, Ralph. The least worst believes they have to vote for Obama. But if you don't have a breaking point, and this is the question that baffles the progressive intelligence, how bad does it have to get before you say no more? I think the problem is there is no breaking point. It'll just one day be so bad there will never be a chance to go back and we're almost there because the progressive intelligentsia fucked it up in the early 2000s when Ralph Nader was indeed running in these in these elections as a viable, possible third-party candidate who could have been at the debates had there been a groundswell of support for him instead of a bunch of fucking liberal, scumbag, Democrat, moron, anti-democratic dipshits who were trying to get him off the ballot. Which, in fact, is still going on because the current Green Party presidential candidate, Jill Stein, and her running mate, Sherry Honkala, were just recently arrested outside of Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York where there was the second U.S. presidential debate happening. They went there as an act of civil disobedience because they knew they were not even allowed in. Unreal. And they knew they would not be allowed to debate, so they just went to make their presence known, and uh, this is how it goes now, I guess. It's so crazy. America, you have a two-party system. You are one party away from the Soviet Union. Yeah, and it's barely even questioned. Mainstream media certainly is not questioning this. So, Chris, Ralph Nader is not alone in his assessment of Obama. No. There are many other progressives uh, who echo this same line. For example, Connor Friedersdorf in The Atlantic. Is that real? That's actually his name. Frank Uh, Winker, being of The Atlantic (laughs) Monthly. Connor Friedersdorf published an article, Why I Refuse to Vote for Barack Obama, which was very controversial. 
And uh, he says, I'm not a purist. There is no such thing as a perfect political party or a president who governs in accordance with one's every ethical judgment. But some actions are so ruinous to human rights, so destructive of the Constitution, and so contrary to basic morals that they are disqualifying. Most of you will go that far with me. If two candidates favored a return to slavery, for example, or wanted to stone adulterers, you wouldn't cast your ballot for the one with a better position on health care. This is his analogy. Fair enough. Extrajudicial killings, drone strikes. Obama is obviously a fucking war criminal. However, to counter that, some have argued that elections are not the time to be working on a viable third party option. The time to do that is outside of elections when you are not completely blackballed out of the media, you're not completely excluded from all discussion, and you don't have to come up against the throngs of progressives who, fearful of a far-right Republican win, will only vote against the Republican candidate. This is the argument put forward in an article on Alternet called The 2012 Elections Have Little to Do with Obama's Record, which is why we are voting for him. He has a record? Is it on iTunes? The author's right. This will be one of the most polarized and critical elections in recent history. Unfortunately, what too few leftists and progressives have been prepared to accept is that the polarization is to a great extent centered on a revenge-seeking white supremacy, on race and the racial implications of the moves to the right in the U.S. political system. It is also focused on the resubjugation of women, harsh burdens on youth and the elderly, increased war dangers, and reaction all along the line for labor and the working class. No one on the left with any good sense should remain indifferent or stand idly by in the critical need to defeat Republicans this year. This is a line, of course, that we hear every election, it seems. But I do encourage everyone to read the article because it is uh, a lengthy and relatively reasoned argument. These are certainly not reactionary pro-Democrat Obama supporters. They are smart progressives who are completely critical of his record. They simply state that as a strategy for building a grassroots political progressive movement in the U.S., Elections are not the place to do that. Get the guy in who is the least worst so that your organizing is the least encumbered by terrible, repressive domestic policies so that you can continue to build this movement. Which we, I mean, which America currently has under Obama and yeah. have been extended under Obama. Yeah, I mean, it, does, it just keeps getting worse. Obviously, just as we talked to Will Potter last episode about terrorism enhancements and FBI treatment of activists. Obviously, this has gotten worse progressively through every presidential term, regardless of which party they nominally belong to. So there is also obviously a strong argument that it doesn't fucking matter which one of the clowns is in there. They will both continue to push their repressive agendas. But on the other hand, there is an argument to be made that the most vulnerable people in society will see a tangible difference in their lives between these two administrations. And it is generally the more privileged class who is having these political discussions who like to pontificate about whether we should be voting for the third party candidate, only talking about it when it comes to election time, and then knowing that there's no way they are actually going to take the election. And then it's those underprivileged people who are affected. I mean, I don't fucking know. I don't even live in this place. If I was an American, I would still vote possibly green. Right. Despite that, because then you just have a number. You have more numbers. Yes, Grow that true. number and people see that number somewhere in a fucking page 45 
in some column about the election results. And this is how I always conduct myself here in Manitoba and in Canada when it comes to voting. But I also live in a place where I know that the most progressive of the mainstream parties always wins. And so it's a no-brainer for me to support the Green or whatever other candidate that actually represents my views. Because there's not really any chance, usually, of anyone else winning. In this neighborhood. In this neighborhood, yes. Well, and even provincially. We always end up with the NDP for our riding provincially, but that doesn't mean that... And we still have industrialized farming destroying the province. Yes, yes, it's true. But I never have to vote for them because they win anyway. (laughs) I never have to worry about my vote affecting whether the Conservatives get in power. But, you know, this is an age-old debate when it comes to elections. And sadly, most people, like myself don't take part in enough day-to-day grassroots activism and community building, which is what has the most impact on people's lives and instead get distracted by the charade of elections, which is what is happening right now and which is what will happen in the weeks to come when we see what dick fucking head asshole cock gets to run the U.S. for the next four years. Anyway, those links are in the show notes. And uh, once again... I am thoroughly depressed. (laughs) It's Christmas time in Washington. The Democrats rehearsed. Getting into gear for four more years. But things not getting worse. Republicans drank whiskey neat. I think they're lucky stars. Said it cannot seek another turn. There'll be no more FDRs. And I sat home, Tennessee, just staring at the screen. An uneasy feeling in my chest, wondering what it means. So come back. Woody Guthrie, I come back to us now. I tell you, rise from paradise and rise again somehow. If you run into Jesus, maybe he can help you out. I come back, Woody Guthrie.
was out I come back Woody Guthrie to us There's foxes in the hen out in the corn The unions have been busted The proud red banners torn To listen to the radio You'd think it all was well But you and me and Cisco know It's going straight to hell Come back to him, a golden rise up, old Joe Hill. The barricades are going up, and they cannot break our will. Come back to us, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Marching in the Selma. As the bells of freedom ring So come back Woody Guthrie Come back to us now Until eyes from paradise Rise again somehow Derek, Derek, Boberic, Bomana, Fana, Foferic, Fee, Five, Foferic, Derek did we receive any listener feedback, Derek? We did. We did receive some. I don't want to hear it. We received some feedback on uh, our discussion of the Black Block, Chris Hedges' debate last episode. A caller who did not wish for his call to be played on the air, presumably because he is a political operative who is currently underground, and he didn't want his location transmitted through the frequencies in the audio recording that he left for us. So we're going to respect that and not play that call, but... He had two points that he wanted to make about... Yeah. It. Had two points that they wanted to be expressed regarding the motivations behind the black bloc. One being that uh, one of the motivations was to hit corporations where it hurt in their bottom line. Got no problem with that. I got no problem with that. I don't think we discounted that as a reason. But no, we're I think merely... it was more about doing it with using nonviolent protesters as your human shield. Yeah. Um, his her. next point... It. Hits, her, they... Hit. Was that... At least in Seattle, one of the uh, in the WTO protests, yes, was that the the motivation was to try to force the nonviolent protesters into clashes with the police, with the idea that it would spark some sort of revolutionary action from the people. Did anybody call who wasn't an underground political operative that we can actually play their message on the podcast, on the radio, on our show, on the here, now? We do. We did. They are. They're here. Let's hear them. Uh, hey there, Jesus H. Chris and Derek Hogue. Uh, this is Will over in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I'm sure you guys are tired about talking uh, about hockey up there in Canada. But uh, what do you guys think about the Winnipeg Jets uh, returning to Winnipeg? Um, do you think this is exciting at all as fans, or do you just kind of see this as like a destructive thing to the economy and the peg 
how do you guys feel about it in uh, general? And uh, yeah, you guys talking to Will. Will, thanks so much for your call and that important question. We're now going to avoid answering your question because the Jets reek. Yeah, instead, Will, we are going to direct your attention and our listeners' attention to an article by Dave Zirin. Who's Dave Zirin? Dave Zirin is a political sports writer. Love his stuff. Very interesting. Very hard-hitting. Sports from a political angle. I don't like sports, but I like reading his stuff. You like sports, so you must like reading his stuff, too? I do. This article he published uh, not long ago is called Meet the Lockout Lawyers Destroying Sports. In it, he describes how the four lockouts which have occurred in the past year, since August 2011, in three of the major sports leagues, are actually part of what he calls a coordinated management offensive against organized labor that has uh, implications far beyond the realm of sports. Dave Zirin says, I'm sure this must seem like a wild coincidence. Four lockouts in 14 months affecting three of the four major professional sports leagues of this country. He's talking about the United States. What are the odds? Actually, they're very good. This is not merely a case of four sets of labor negotiations that have tragically broken down. This is a conscious, industry-wide strategy. He goes on to describe how a law firm called Proskauer Rose is representing management in all of these leagues where the lockouts have occurred. And this law firm... Every league has the same... The same law firm hmm. representing the management. Yeah, the same law firm called Proskauer Rose. And they happen to have also represented corporations such as BP America, Chevron, and ExxonMobil. That's a pretty... It's a family-oriented group of companies. Good for the planet. Yeah, with an excellent civic record. Yeah. In this article, he describes how this is part of... He's calling this a concerted effort to attack organized labor in sports uh, as a realm where they are able to get the sympathies of the general public because the pay scales are so high relative to most people. Uh, They're able to successfully employ tactics to basically break labor on this large scale with the goal ultimately that this will trickle down into the rest of the population where it has already pretty much been broken for the most part. Everybody where the general public would then become non-sympathetic to labor organizing at all. Exactly. And not only is there this law firm involved, which has represented these polluting corporate criminal oil giants. But the PR firm that has been hired by the NHL management to manage their messaging is none other than Luntz Global. Luntz. Luntz. Headed by Frank Luntz. Now, Chris, tell us, who is this Frank Luntz and Luntz Global? Well, Derek, Frank Luntz, and I quote Barry Pacheski, has played a key role in framing the GOP's message over the years, the GOP being the Republican National Party. Correct. When global warming was recast as climate change, that was Frank Luntz. When the estate tax became a death tax, that was Frank Luntz. When the Affordable Health Care for America Act was held up as a government takeover, that was Frank Luntz too. So now we have this same Frank Luntz managing the PR for the NHL. Brilliantly, I might add, like when they released their statement that they were providing a 50-50 split offer to the, the day, players. The day after all this broke. Yeah, uh, which was a PR coup because pretty much everybody that I know that was talking about this thought, hey, if the players turn down a 50-50 offer, obviously they're not serious. I have no sympathy for them. It's a brilliant PR strategy, regardless of what that 50-50 actually represented in the deal. It's not really brilliant. It's just that the public is very dumb. <laughs> 
The well, people who immediately they, see that and don't think twice, they don't generally think twice about anything. And this Luntz knows the target audience for this messaging yeah, as well. We, they know what will work. It's a dumbed down audience that watches sports, watches reality TV, and does not have any sense of civic engagement. Or context for how public relations generally works and how billionaire owners might be massaging the message uh, in order to win over public sentiment. Right. You can read about this interesting and nefarious state of affairs with pro sports and the NHL management on uh, these two articles. We've got them linked in the show notes, one of them on The Nation and the other at deadspin.com. I'd just like to add on a personal note that the NHL labor dispute is an analogy for any other dispute that there is in our society. And please, when you think about it, try to forget the numbers, scale the numbers down to the size of a small business and ask yourself this question. Could you watch professional hockey without the players? And then ask yourself, could you watch professional hockey without the owners? There you go. I don't watch either. And I'll add to that, I hope the players remember this when they go back into the more private sector and are called upon by teachers' unions or nurses' unions or whatever unions for people not to cross their picket lines. Exactly. Yeah, listen to your guys' uh, radio show with Wab Canoe. That was sweet. Uh, I'm a teacher in the United States, and uh, it's embarrassing, but a lot of the stuff that um, he talked about, I didn't know much about. I know a lot of the history, but there was a lot of specific stuff that just kind of blew me away, opened my mind, and uh, actually helped me as we're teaching some of U.S. history, early history right now, and I uh, was able to stick some of that stuff in there. So appreciate it. Open up people's minds. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye. Well, thank you, anonymous teacher from America. Much appreciated. You know, there's nothing to be embarrassed about there, I don't think. We are taught garbage in school. We are not given proper history, proper context, and I don't think it's that much different when you go through university to become a teacher anyway. So it's no surprise that you would be missing certain aspects of the history of settlers and First Nations people in North America. And I'm glad that Wob could remedy that somewhat so you could pass that on to students. I like, I like that call. I like that kind of feedback. Awesome. Thanks for your feedback, everybody. Keep the feedback coming, people. We love it. Thanks for tuning in for episode four of Escape Velocity Radio. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail at 701-213-4483. You can also find us on Facebook, unfortunately, at facebook.com forward slash escapevelocityradio and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash escapevelocityradio. To listen to previous episodes and to see the show notes and links to the music we play each episode, visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. iTunes subscribers, help us become super famous and rich by rating and reviewing the show. How do we get rich from that? We don't. I want to know which one of you turd wagons is talking about state velocity and all this other shit and why I haven't heard one damn thing about a positron collider, a cyclotron, or any type of quantum physics, or even escaping velocity itself. It's bullshit. But the show pretty fucking funny, even though I have no idea what you goofy fuckers are talking about. Escape velocity. Escape velocity. Ray. Ray. Ray.